We are in a series in Amos. Uh, I think it's about six weeks in the book of Amos. And it's funny because uh, as, I, as I talk with the other pastors, uh, we, we, we get together every week to talk through sermons and talk through um, just what's going on in this. And, and we continue to come back, and I find that um, it's funny because we all say, man, this, it, it seems like you just got to yell at the people every week, and it's not so fun, but it's good for us. Uh, but at the same time, we're all saying, but we wish it were longer because there's so much in here. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's such a rich uh, pointed um, message that, that Amos gives us. And I, and I liken it, uh, you know, to, um, to boot camp. Uh, it's that, it's that, that necessary thing that you go through, uh, and not so that you just get to be a better Christian and you're stronger in your Christian faith, but that you become more aligned, more unified. The goal of boot camp being unity, um, not simply just physical condition. And, and, and I feel like this Amos has been such a boot camp for me. And I hope today, as we go through this, there is a unity and an alignment that comes from, from looking at how the Lord speaks to the people uh, that he loves so very much, uh, as he speaks to Israel and as we can transfer that to, uh, to our lives today. Uh, so it's been my prayer that, that, that God speak clearly to us uh, and that, that Christ be uh, glorified uh, in this. I think the topic that we have here um, is, uh, is this idea of hollow faith. Uh, hollow faith in, uh, in Amos uh, 5 and 6. It's saying you do all of these things as Christians, or I guess as Israelites, but, uh, but your faith is void something. It doesn't have the substance on the inside uh, that it needs. And he, likens, and he speaks highly of this fact that, that, that your justice and your righteousness is not quite what it should be. And so we'll read here together, uh, and, and, then we'll, uh, and then we'll kind of go through this idea of justice and righteousness. So uh, if you are able to, uh, I'd ask that you stand as we hear the word of the Lord from Amos 5. I'll read verses 1, 2, and then we'll, uh, and then we'll jump ahead to verse 21. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Skipping ahead to verse 21. I hate and despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And peace offerings and your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So a couple of weeks ago, I, I quoted a, a pastor uh, from back home in Nebraska. Uh, he says, justice is primarily a worship issue. That this idea of justice, how we interact with one another, has something fundamentally uh, that, that comes from our worship, our understanding of God, how we interact with God. But as I've been thinking about this uh, over the last few weeks, this justice is primarily a worship issue. I also think that Amos is bringing about this idea that worship is also a justice issue. I'm not just flipping words. It means something. Worship is also a justice issue. You can't rightly worship if you're not rightly understanding and executing justice in the world around you. You'll be something more like a, a vacuous tomb, a, a whitewashed tomb, if you will. 
But as, uh, and I want to maybe set up a couple terms here that, that Amos is dealing with as we, as we create this idea of the hollow worshiper who has all of the signs of Christianity, but none of the heart that's actually executing justice and seeking righteousness. So there are a couple of terms that, that, that the Old, Old Testament prophets, especially Amos, interacts with. Now, there's this one idea that God desires wholeness and completeness of individuals and of society. So individually, wholeness and completeness. As a, success, as a society, wholeness and completeness, uh, completeness. This word is the Old Testament word of uh, shalom, which means wholeness and completeness. This is the goal. This is the state and the assessment of, of, of what things are. But that's just simply speaking of the state. It's like saying that we are balanced or unbalanced. Either we are in shalom or we are not in shalom. So what is then the substance of that? It's this idea of righteousness. Righteousness then uh, is, is this idea of a right relationship. Shalom occurs when everything is in right relationship to each other, as is designed by God. There's one more term uh, that we need before we're ready to you know, really plow through this today, and that word is justice. So if shalom is the intended state of reality, righteousness is the substance of that complete and whole society, then justice is the activity, is the action of making things right. So the goal is shalom. This is the designed design of God, uh, shalom, that it all be in right relationship with one another. And the way we go about that is by executing justice, that we, we seek justice, we make things right, whether that's with God or with, whether that's with each other. And so that is what justice is. So those are some terms that I'll be working with. I felt like that would be really helpful because Amos really leans into this idea of justice and righteousness. So an ignorant or arrogant view of God, of his intended relationships with us, or of his revealed will for our daily activity is actually a really, really big deal. And Amos makes that clear. He says, you don't get who God is. You forgot who God is, and it's affecting everything. And in the tone of Amos, God is lamenting because he's going to punish you. Like, this is, this is over. You did this wrong. Everything fell apart when you weren't aligned to who God is and what he requires of you. And Amos's point is this. The creator God, the Lord, the God of hosts, has chosen you, his holy people. In his love, he has entered into a relationship with you, a special relationship with you. Last week, we talked about this. This is uh, chapter 3, verse 2. A special people. He has entered into this relationship with you, and he bound it together in a relational, loving covenant. And he says, I am your God. You are my people. I will protect you, and I will provide for you, and you will worship and obey me. This is the relationship that happens, and it's a right relationship, and it's a very Old Testament idea, but we move into the New Testament, and we get Christ, and we get something very similar for Christians as well. But Amos comes along, the first of these prophets, and he says, but Israel, God has required you to worship him completely, but you blew it. You took the love and the blessing of the Lord, and you then turned and credited yourselves, saying, have we not by our own strength done these things? He says, you're frauds, you're whitewashed tombs. Your play acting, your holiness, and your emptiness uh, is, uh, and you are empty inside. There's nothing there. You have follow, hollow faith. So then, here we go. This is, a, this is a survey of maybe a little bit of the rest of, of chapter 5 here. Uh, he talks a lot about all of these different um, uh, places within the city. Place is a big deal in Amos, 
As you read it, you can look at things like houses and temples and altars and cities and fortresses. So surveying the landscape, then Amos turns through the, through the chapter 5 and he says something like this. He says, here's the landscape of, of Israel, but also here's the landscape of your hearts, which are hollow. You sit in your comfy houses with your decadent cities, crediting your confident strongholds, supposing that life is complete and whole. That's you, O Israel. You're worshiping invented gods in, in, uh, in Bethel, in Gilgal. You're worshiping created things, and you're supposing that your life and your success is evidence that you are good with God. All the while, he says, you damn up the Lord's justice. It just sits there, and you hold it back. You hold it back from the poor. This is uh, chapter 5, verse 11. You hold it back from the needy. Verse 12, because they are trampled and they're turned aside because when I look at the gate, this is the place where justice happens. There's nothing there. You're all running around in all of the things that show your decadence and your safety and your security and your strength and you're perverting justice, which is the exact outflowing of what I've done for you. So there's our problem. But this isn't just Israel. This is exactly what we do. This is, I don't know, a diagnostic of the American church today. So now, the Lord will continue on, and this is where we really glean some wisdom uh, from, from, from Amos here, is the Lord will continue on. We're in, uh, in verse, uh, where is it? In verse 5, we read, or sorry, in verse 1 of chapter 5, we read that the Lord is taking up a lament. So it sounds like the Lord is harsh here. But if we read back, it says, hear the word that I take up in lamentation over you. A lament is crying out for the brokenness of reality as it is. I wanted there to be something. There was a hope. God hoped his people would do this. But they continue to be stubborn and turn and turn and turn. And so now lament, Naomi laments because reality is not what she hoped it would be. So also the Lord, like us, with emotions and love like us and hope like us and a desire and a plan like us, Laments, and he says, oh, I have to punish you. I require holiness and justice. I don't want to do this. Last week, we talked about the Lord's punishment. We referenced Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews, where it says the Lord punishes those whom he loves. The Lord doesn't delight in the punishment. And we see that. He's writing a lament. He's saying, I am crying in song about how the situation is, O people but he gives us good words to encourage us. So he's going to then, then unfold this here into three woes. I, I just want you to look here in, in your Bibles here. I'm, this is going to be a helpful thing of framing it up. Uh, five, uh, chapter 5, verse 18, we get the word woe. Woe to you who desires the day of the Lord. So there's one woe. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. And then chapter 6, verse 4, woe to those who lie on the beds of ivory of ivory. The woe is a pronouncement of judgment, but it's, it's a lamenting pronouncement of judgment. And he says, oh, why you got to be that way? Oh, why you got to do this? You know, we just, it's, if you have children, and whether they're good children or bad children, they are sinful children. Um, and you have to explain to them, like, we're in trouble now. 
Woe to you because you did this again. You punch her in the face again. We don't do that. And woe to you because you took the crayons when she was here. And, and, and when we go through these explanations, this is what the Lord is doing to his children, Israel. He's saying, here are the things you're doing that damn up justice. So we can learn from the Israelites today because God still holds us to justice. He still holds us to the requirement of righteousness And he still speaks to his children in very similar ways. And so, as we enter into this, these woes can help us to understand what is wrong with Israel and also provide a great great foil, that is, just kind of a reflection to kind of analyze ourselves for us to run a spiritual diagnostic of our own hearts. So I'd ask you as we read this to think of yourself in this, uh, that it's not just learning facts about Israel, that we're actually thinking through our heart condition today. Maybe another way to say this is these three woes help us to identify ways in which we confuse our worship and damn up God's justice. So, as a father speaks to his children, there are three questions that the Lord implies to his children. Number one, are you exempt from the Lord's judgment? I know that seems pretty, pretty simple. Uh, and condescending. Verse 18, we're going to actually start reading through some of this here. Verse 18 of chapter 5, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Now, okay, the day of the Lord is this day, this coming future day when the Lord will come and judge all things, and everything will be made right, and he will, he will judge all wickedness, and it will be done. It will be, it will be punished. And he says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Is it, not, uh, is it darkness and not light? As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him? He gets away from something, but then the bear meets him. Or he went to the house and he leaned his hand against the wall, just casually because it's nice and it's safe, and then a serpent bit him. Don't you understand that, that this isn't all sunshine and roses this day of the Lord? In fact, this is a really bad thing. I mean, it's good for God's glory, but for those who are wicked, who are sinners like us, Why are you acting like you're exempt from the day of the Lord? Why would I want God's judgment to come down now unless I knew or unless I supposed that his judgment wasn't on me? We do that in Christianity today. We live lives that seem to be or suggest that we are exempt from the Lord's judgment. How many times, okay, here's one that I don't want to go into, but apparently I'm going into it now. Um, In our politics, how often do we breathe God wills it language and we suppose the other side is on the wrong and not the wrong of the political party but on the side of God? We have Satan and God and they have different colors, but they just have to be the opposite colors. Sometimes we go into this and we say, God, execute judgment on that party, execute this. So that's a really a really big deal here, but we do that with every other issue as well. If someone's not like me, it's probably because they're less holy. God needs to purify them, and we go that direction. So, Lord, please rain down judgment. Help my spouse understand that they are so wrong. That's an easy one. That's, not, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a common one, right? The, uh, why do we act like we are exempt from the Lord? Israel is acting exempt from the Lord. And if we act as though we are exempt from his judgment, we may not think it, but I want to help you go there. The logical line of reasoning is you assume that you are complete and whole. I'm good, so go get him, God. That's the stance we have. That is offensive to God. That is hollow faith. 
That is a big reason why we confess our sins out loud every week up here. Because we need to know that I'm not good. (laughs) We need to know that his judgment and his justice is on all. Maybe this shows up sometimes a different way. Maybe this shows up in low-grade prosperity gospel or triumphalism. It's the notion that if I believe in God, then I have the right. I am entitled to the blessing of better finances or health or relationships. And and it seems pretty easy to say, but, but, but there are times we think that. Like something's going wrong in life. Maybe if I go to church, it'll clear up. Maybe. But the act of going to church is not a one-to-one exchange. If we go that route, we end up manipulating God. God, I'm going to go so that you do. And that's kind of the exchange that happens. This is the profane worship that he's calling out when he says, take all your stuff. What is it? Chapter 4-4. Come to Bethel. Come to Gilgal. Multiply your transgressions. Just come here, do your thing, and it's like sin to me. Because I'm not going to do this one-to-one exchange. Because my judgment is here, and you are acquired holiness. He says, take away, uh, this is uh, moving on in these verses ahead. He says, take away your pretty worship services and deal with your sins. Deal with those things that you have left undone. Verse 22, uh, 21 and 22, let's read it. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And he's rejecting them. Big time here. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look at them. I'm going to pause there. I will not look at them. He is rejecting outright and fully and completely Israel. Uh, He's saying this is it. And this is a big deal right here when he says, I will not look at them. Let's get the image here. God has a eyes if he's looking. He has eyes. He has a face. He's looking at them. This is the, 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 your face shine upon you. Your, 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 glory, the, your, your presence is here. I will not look. It means that he's turning his face away from them. In biblical language, this turning away God's face from him, no longer in my presence, this idea is called forsaking. You are forsaken people. I am turning away from you. Now, this comes back because we find out that those who believe in Christ are not forsaken because someone else was forsaken on our behalf. All of our sins are there, and he is turning away from them. This is a very, very big deal for God. You worship me rightly, and it means all of your life. Love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, not just with your pretty worship. He says, I will not look upon them. I am forsaking you. Verse 20, 24, he says, but there is something we can do. All along Amos, there's this mention of this remnant, or there's this mention of they'll be hauled away, but there will be like a piece of a couch left. And we find all of this is going to be trickling along. In a couple weeks, we'll get to this because God's just judgment is not just a done. He always is giving this glimmer of hope, this glimmer of Christ, that there's something there he says, here's how you will turn. And eventually Christ will show us this. Verse 24, but let justice roll down. That's a a very important word there, but. You can do all of these fancy things of your hollow worship, but that's not the fullness of your faith. Here it is. Justice and righteousness 
but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I love the analogy here. There's so many word pictures in Amos. Okay, so he says the day of the Lord is like darkness. Now let's think about this. We go about the city, which he's already created. Okay, so we've got all these, uh, the, the, the fortress, the, the vineyards, the, the, the city, the houses, um, the, uh, the places, the altar, the place of worship. So he's creating this whole landscape for us to see Israel and to analyze our own hearts. So he's kind of doing this double thing here. And then he says, this darkness of the day of the Lord is coming. What area of that city is touched by darkness? All of it. All of it is judged. All of it is subject to God's judgment. There's a principle for you to take. Live as though you are under God's judgment because you are. There's more. We'll get to that, but that's one. But then he says, but let justice roll down. Now we're in, we're in, we're in the Iowa City area and we are very well versed in floods. So this is helpful. Uh, let justice roll down like waters. So, okay, those of you who have been around for a while, what area of the city does a flood touch? All of it. Let righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream, all of it, fill your city with right relationship of God. Your justice is to in all areas of the city, not just in this room, not in the sanctuary, the the one place that is holy for God. Go out, fill. Your justice is to be executed, my justice, on, on, on all the world. God is saying, go fill that. Make everything right in your daily dealings and transactions. Make sure even the littlest things, go back to the store and make right the errors that they made. And do that. Uh, go in, in, your, in, your, uh, in your contracts, do that. In, in maybe your investments, do that. In your relationships with your family, do that. Just speak beautifully and, and holy and, and, and truthfully and lovingly with people. Execute judgment. Seek right relationships. But you'll never do that. I always, I always give, you know, in counseling, I always give a, a, a triangle. This is me. I didn't make a slide for it, so I'm making it with my fingers. Um, so there's a triangle. Each one of these points, you have God. You can pick which one. God, yourself, and everybody else. Or you can just fill in the blank on the person you're having struggle with. Um, there, there, there are three lines in that triangle, right? Right relationship, righteousness, is first you and God. You can't have the triangle without that. Okay, and then you have to extend that to you and the other person. But then there's this amazing thing, this justice of God, which is then you promote. I can't even, I wish I would have drawn a slide. This is ridiculous. Um, You promote and you speak to that other line. So this is where I'm thinking. This line here, you have to help that person connect to God so that right relationship can be there. Because if you don't have right relationships between all people and God, your relationships with each other are going to be bogus. They're going to be in vain. They're going to be weird. They're going to be fake. We're going to come to church and say, how are you? How are the kids? This is great. Why don't we just lean into, this is one of the beautiful things of community groups, is that we enter into this idea that we can lean into each other a bit more. This is one of those beautiful things about Christian community, whether you're in a community group or not. This is one of the beautiful things that I've seen develop and flourish here at at, at the North Campus through potlucks, through just hanging out, is people wanting to lean into each other more. Give each other some of that freedom to do that. In doing that, we are practicing in a safe environment here with each other, people who are understanding we're executing justice this way. Because then when we go out into the world and we get a whole bunch of people who are understanding the same thing, we have to help them understand God for justice to be around so that righteousness can be there. Let's continue reading. 
So the, uh, the question is, are you exempt from the Lord's judgment? Question number two. Six, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Are you immune to sin? See, the first question, are you exempt from the Lord's judgment? Uh, no is the right answer. Then the next question needs to be, and are you going to get punished because you're sinful? Well, if you don't think you're going to get punished, if you're under that, but you're still good, then you're still in a wrong spot. And that's where the Israelites are. Amos 6.1, Woe to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. The mountain of Samaria is that stronghold uh, uh, where the people feel like they have established safety from all of their enemies. If that goes down, Israel goes down, and it soon will go down. But then he, I'm going to summarize, for the sake of time, the other things that he says here. Uh, he, he goes through uh, in verses 2 and 3, and he basically says, don't think that you're forever protected by your own strength. Just look around in the course of history at all these different nations that are greater than you. They also have fallen. He kind of gives them on a tour. He's like, let's just walk through these. They're done, they're done, they're done, they're done, they're done, they're done. Nobody's going to win. They're better than you. Maybe it's not your strength that does this. I'm going to translate that to a principle for us today. Remember that no one, not even you, is very far from falling. Oh, a lament for the fallen virgin Israel. It could also be a lament for the fallen you and I. There's a term in the Bible called backsliding. There's a term in the Bible called lukewarm. There are things that the Bible even says this is a thing that can happen. If we suppose that when we become a Christian, that prayer or conversion or whatever just covers us, in a way, maybe that's right. But it doesn't mean that we stop sinning. It doesn't mean that we're just okay. Though God calls his people to holiness and Christ exemplifies the way to that holiness, we are not yet in the new heavens and the new earth where we are free from sinning. And because we are not there yet, we must understand that we are every second prone to sin. We are sinners in nature and in choice, always. And so if you have something that you struggle with, and this is the thing, maybe the, I hope this is encouragement. If you have something that you struggle with, that you continue to, to have this guilt, and, 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 and you understand that this is just a barrier between you and God, and you just, get, you just continue to go back to it over and over and over and over again, and that is crushing to you, I want to at least validate, like, that's the human Christian experience. Like, that's, we all have that. But I also want to encourage you that we need to work on that. And we can't work on that unless we join together and help each other work on that. Unless we join together and help each other remember rightly, corporately, the Word of God and His truths for us. We need to be a people that are together in the Word so that our lives can be right with God. Are you exempt from judgment? Are you immune to sin? The resounding answer is no. However, <laughs> Amos is letting the Israelites know the answer, yes, here. So this is where we see Christ. I'm getting, we have one more question, uh, but I want to uh, you know, kind of look at this and say, uh, what's going on here and, and, and how is Christ? He's just dancing all over this right now. Uh, so there's this idea of justice uh, in, uh, in the Psalms, in the Old Testament, in, the, in this Old Testament mindset. Uh, and I call it, I think it's a silly term, but it works, a justice blanket. I know I've probably explained this before. This justice blanket, like justice falls down on everyone. 
right? And in the Psalms, the psalmist says, Lord, let your justice come down on everyone as it does, which is always good to say, like, do the thing you're going to do anyway. Like, it's really nice to pray that. Um, and so he says, come down, but then here's where the psalmist, he uses this words. He says, but put me in your refuge. It's coming down, but give me shelter under it. So that when it comes down, it doesn't hit me because that justice, that right relationship is going to be that I need to be punished. So keep me under that. Let's zip ahead. Same idea in the New Testament. That refuge is the shape of the cross. You come to me, all who are heavy, or all who are, who are, who are weary and, and heavy laden, come to me, I will give you rest. Because when you come to me, your sin is put on me. I am that. And the justice comes down and my blood washes you. It takes your sins and it goes. And that's what happens for the Christian life. That we can pray rightly. God, bring it down. And I can say not because I'm good, go get them, but because I deserve it too. And I need to understand that when I choose to sin, I could easily be kicked out of here, but I'm not because you say I am forever secure in your refuge through faith. And that judgment and that wrath does not fall on me. And that's the only way that we can have this hope. But the Israelites, they're just throwing that whole thing away. They're saying, we've done this all. I'm just going to do more good things, and that's going to make me an okay Christian. I'm just going to say more prayers and attend more services. I'm just going to give more. And, and, and these, are, these are easy things. Uh, these, are, these are almost straw man things, but these are things that we come to sometimes. And he says, no, no, no. It's Christ. Isaiah, prophet, in chapter 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And that peace is that right relationship, that righteousness. And with his wounds we are healed. Christ is the one that can take these things. So uh, that was a moment of Christ there. I want to ask this last question then. In verses 4 through 7 of chapter 6, are you unaffected by the world? A good, loving father asks his people, are, do you really think that you're unaffected by the world? Verse 4, woe to those who lie on beds and stretch themselves on couches. And then I'll summarize. And do all these fancy, comfy things in the safety of their homes. Now we're in verse 6 at the end, and it says, but you are not grieved over the ruin of God's people. Woe to you who think that we're all good, but you don't even care that the church is not as it should be. Man, that's tough. I've heard people from both sides of the spectrum. Uh, one side that says the church is just an awful train wreck, and this is the most horrible thing that has ever been an institution on earth. Uh, that's intense. And then others who say, there's nothing wrong. This is great. The whole world's broken. Reject them. Let's never go out there. Because this is awesome, and they'll get it. Let's pray that they get it and come here and figure it out. You get that spectrum. We need to be figuring out how to balance this. Are you unaffected by the world? I was talking with a, uh, with a good friend here in North Liberty. Uh, he's not a Christian. Uh, and, and we sat down at Kapana, and he's talking through me about just why he doesn't believe in Christ. He gives me some, some reasons. I, I don't think they're good reasons, but they were philosophical reasons uh, for it, and, and they, were, they were pretty weighty reasons. Um, but then his last one, he, he kind of almost apologized. He says, okay, this last one's, I know it's kind of a silly one, but it's real for me. And he asked me this question, and I think it, it plays into this idea of, of Christian relationship in the world. Are we affected by it or not? 
He asked me, one of my big things that makes me struggle with Christianity is, why are so many of my non-Christian friends morally better than a lot of Christians I know? All I, had, all I could say was, that's a good and troubling question. I don't know why we do that. Ugh. That's us. <laughs> the Christians he's referring to are the people around him, and he lives in North Liberty. When we dam up justice, only receiving forgiveness as a collection of individuals and allowing to flow, uh, and allowing to flow that activity of making things right, Pastor Tim Keller, in his book, wonderful book called Generous Justice, he states it this way. He, he describes it this way. He says, when we dam up justice, we hide God's beauty from the eyes of the world. That's exactly what my friend was talking about. If God's people aren't acting beautifully, how can he be beautiful? And that's what Amos is saying to the Israelites. Israelites, you are a chosen people. You are a light to the nations. And you're not doing that, so none of them are getting that. And what's going on? We have to take serious that we are affected by the world. We have to take seriously that the world is affected by us. And what, here's what happens. Uh, Israel uh, answers yes to all these questions. You, do, you, do you suppose that you're just so awesome and God doesn't matter? And basically the answer is Yes. Verse 8, we find out what he says to them. This is the result to, 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 to the Israelites and then also to us. Verse 8, I abhor the pride of Jacob, that's the Israelites, and hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. I don't have time to talk about the language of delivering up. Delivering up something by God is awful. Complete destruction for their sin, it is a terrible, terrible thing. And he says the reason why he reinforces one more time this idea of justice and righteousness. Verse 12 and 13, but you have turned justice into poison and fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You're not worried about making things right because you feel like you're safe and you feel like you're good. He's trying to break us. He's trying to break them that they may turn. God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that they may turn. Here are three points that I think we can take away in light of these things. We can go from here better if we live with the understanding that we are also under judgment. That we are not immune to it, but that Christ has taken that. That is the approach that Christians need to have increasingly because it is like the Christian approach by definition. We are sinners saved by faith in Christ. Though we imperfectly execute justice, the Lord perfectly does so in Christ. Right relationship happens first in Christ. That triangle, it doesn't happen unless we know Christ. It can't ever work if all parties don't understand and believe in Christ. So, uh, point two then. We do well and we, we, we become more unified if, if we live with the understanding as that we are also prone to sin. We are called not to perfection, but to faithfulness. That is our daily task. Faithfulness. We will never, we will never achieve perfection. Holiness is not a product of defense. There is a place for resisting temptation and steering clear of sin, but that so easily entangles. However, holiness is a proactive pursuit. So maybe you're trying to be holy and abstain from things and be holy and reject things. 
That's part of it. But go for things. This is the point of the cross, is that we don't have to go about our life worrying about if we're going to go to hell. There is an assurance and a confidence in our faith that we can then actively throw everything into our pursuit of holiness. In fact, Christ commands us, oh, sorry, uh, in the words of Amos 5, he says, seek the Lord, that's proactive. Seek good, that's proactive. Let justice roll down like water. We are called to something. So if you're just sitting there scared, wondering, how do I get over this thing? Maybe go for the good. Thomas Chalmers, he says in a, in, in a glorious essay, uh, an expulsive power of a new affection. Uh, what that means is when you have so much good of Christ, it's going to push out some of the sin because it's less desirable. And the final thing here is uh, that we do well going from here is we live as also under judgment, live as also prone to sin as we live as also sent into the world. We are not unaffected by the world but also the world is not unaffected by us. We are sent into the world for its turning, its transformation, and its renewal. In fact, Christ commands us to be meaningfully part of the world around us. He goes as far as saying in Matthew 28, as he's leaving, he says, this is what you're going to do now. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations. Isn't that incredible? Christ comes and satisfies the justice of God, making relationship right. Then he calls a people that he does that to, and he says, Israel was supposed to be that light to the nations. Now you through me are a light to the nations. Go and do what I've been meaning to do, make disciples of all the nations. James 1 26. I really think that the, uh, the, 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 uh, the book of James, I really think that James um, read a lot of Amos. It's very similar. Uh, James 1.26, he says the same thing that Amos is saying. If anyone thinks that his religion, that he is religious, and he doesn't watch his tongue or anything that he's doing, but he deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. This person's religion is empty. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world, to seek purity, and to build right relationships through the, act, the ongoing act of justice and executing it. So the, uh, the urge, the plea, the, the, uh, what God has for us here today is, is to fill ourselves with justice with the act of making justice known, with the act of bringing right relationship to God and to one another. Fill yourselves with justice as you encourage right relationship between God and each other. And this is the fullness of what the worship is. It's all one big thing as we seek this shalom, as we seek this righteousness of right, right relationship, we get busy making right our relationships through the ongoing act of executing justice. Let's pray.